welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for May 27, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I'm the editor of the Daily Appellate Report, a print supplement to the Daily Journal, and I'm happy to welcome you to this, the fifth episode of the Weekly Appellate Report, your source every Friday for the appellate week that was, featuring commentary from California practitioners, jurists, and academics. I'm tremendously excited to bring you today's program. We have two fantastic guests that will help us walk through two California Supreme Court cases, one which had its opinion filed Monday, and which deals with the potential tort liability of raw material suppliers to users of products derived from those raw materials. The other case, which held its oral argument yesterday before the State High Court in San Francisco, presents the issue of whether anti-slap protection extends to the activity of voting by city council members or other government officials. Don Willenberg, a partner at Gordon & Reese, will join us first to speak about the tort case, Webb v. Special Electric Company. The defendant company in this case, a small outfit of just two business partners, brokered a deal in the 1970s which helped an industrial manufacturer acquire a certain amount of asbestos. This asbestos was a particularly harmful variety, and parts made by the company who acquired the raw asbestos from Special Electric eventually found their way into the hands of the plaintiff in this case who worked for a plumbing supply store in the 1960s and 70s. After the plaintiff developed mesothelioma in 2011, he brought suit against Special Electric, arguing the company should have done more to warn him of the dangers of the particularly harmful asbestos Special Electric had helped supply. While the trial court jury sided with the plaintiff, the judge there granted a judgment notwithstanding the verdict motion, but the Court of Appeals overturned that grant and reinstated the award, prompting high court review. On appeal, Special Electric offered the sophisticated intermediary defense, arguing that its duty to warn the plaintiff was cut off when it brokered the original deal with the manufacturer, since the manufacturer was well aware of asbestos and its potential dangers, and thus assumed the burden of warning users further downstream. This was the first time the California Supreme Court dealt specifically with the sophisticated intermediary doctrine. Next, Rex Heinke from Ink and Gump will speak about an important case argued yesterday, in which city council members are accused of having their votes bought by a waste-hauling company in return for ensuring that company earned an exclusive city contract. The defendant council members moved to dispose of the suit by way of an anti-slap motion, prompting the high court to reckon with whether the simple act of voting, as here in a city council meeting, is the type of activity that the anti-slap statute protects. The Court of Appeals held that it was not. Now the Supreme Court gets to weigh in. Then, after our guest visit, we'll finish off the show with a quick roundup of a few other noteworthy appellate happenings from this past week, including developments in the case of Vergara v. California, a case discussed previously on this podcast relating to public teacher tenure and educational standards. We'll also touch on a ruling in People v. Franklin, a state high court case addressing the constitutionality of lengthy sentences on juvenile criminal offenders. Finally, we'll briefly mention a U.S. Supreme Court ruling on race-based jury selection. Don't forget that after the show, you can earn CLE credit for listening. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. And with that, we'll get to my conversation with Don Willenberg. Happy to welcome now Don Willenberg. Mr. Willenberg is a partner at Gordon Reese, and his particular practice areas include environmental and toxic torts, appellate law, insurance, and green technology and climate change. Mr. Willenberg is a regular contributor of columns and commentary to the Daily Journal. Mr. Willenberg, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So we're talking about Webb versus Special Electric Company, a case filed out of the California Supreme Court on Monday, and one that deals with the tort liability of suppliers of raw materials, and something that I believe was an issue of first impression, the sophisticated intermediary defense. Is that right? Well, that's that's right. The uh, the case is about the sophisticated intermediary defense. It is the first one from the California Supreme Court to directly address that issue, uh, but the issue is related to other things that the court has addressed. Okay. There's the cases about sophisticated user Johnson versus American Standard, and there's cases about learned intermediaries, and this is in some ways a. Uh, confluence or middle ground between between those two. Sure. And we'll get more into unpacking that in just a second. Let's go ahead and, and talk about a few of the underlying facts of this case. So the defendant here... And the defendant, oh, Special Electric, it was a, a two-person outfit in Wisconsin that acted as a broker 
for a certain kind of asbestos and uh, brokered that to, among others, Johns Manville, which is the almost the, the, the poster child of the asbestos industry. It was the largest asbestos supplier. It had made uh, many, many uh, different kinds of asbestos products. It had it mined asbestos, raw asbestos on its own. You mentioned that Special Electric helped broker a deal of a particular kind of asbestos, and there's some claim that this particular kind could be potentially much more hazardous than, say, the, a generic run-of-the-mill asbestos. Is that right? Well, I'm not sure what a generic run-of-the-mill asbestos is, but, <laughs> it, but it is true uh, that there are, are several different types of asbestos, and the one involved here, chrysidolite, is uh, is much rarer than the other kinds of asbestos that have been commercially used, uh, and it is also uh, significantly more toxic than the other kind than the other for mineral varieties of asbestos that were commercially used. Okay, so now Special Electric brokers this deal, the deal at issue here with Johns Manville, back in the 1970s, and at that time. Johns Manville supplied, or they they had a plant in Long Beach that supplied a certain type of pipe to various distributors, including a plumbing supply store where the plaintiff here, William Webb, worked. Is that correct? Well, it's, you know, it was actually a, a, a step even in between that. Uh, Johns Manville made transite pipe at its facility. It sold to a supplier, which then sold to a supply house, at which plaintiff worked. So, so the plaintiff is an employee of a customer of a customer of Johns Manville, uh, and someone who, presumably, Special Electric would never have any knowledge of or way to get a hold of. Sure. So fair to say, a fair number of links in the chain between Special Electric and the plaintiff here, William Webb. That there are there are more multiple links. That's for sure. Okay. Um, now, at the time, when Webb was working for the plumbing supply store where he was an employee, is handling this pipe that had some of the residual croxy... I'm sorry, could you pronounce it in the time for me? Uh, it, it's chrysidolite. Actually, it was, there was, there, it, the, the facts of this case are, 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 are we're not even sure whether, he ever, whether Mr. Webb ever encountered any chrysidolite that Special Electric uh, brokered. Okay. What we what we do know, and what the court says is, well, he was exposed to Johns Manville products that contained trace amounts of chrysidolite at roughly the same time that Special Electric was supplying chrysidolite. And uh, even the court said, well, evidence of this link could be stronger. Yeah. I'll suggest yes, it, 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 that that is, is not evidence of much of a link at all. But, but that's the evidence of that that they had in this case. Okay. Now, that notwithstanding, at the trial court level, the jury returns a verdict in favor of Webb, and not just against Special Electric. There was multiple defendants, but I believe the tort liability assigned to Special Electric was something about around 20%, correct? Uh, I'm not remembering the exact percentage, I think but, it's 18, but yes, there were multiple. 20. But then I believe Special Electric moved for a, a non-suit. What happened then? Well, Special Electric moved for non-suit uh, at the close of plaintiff's case, so it's it, it, it's it's uh, it, it's not it's before the verdict even comes in, and the trial court didn't rule on it at that time. The trial court waited for the uh, the rest of the case to to finish finish being tried. It was tried. The jury entered its verdict, and then after the jury entered its verdict, the trial court decided to uh, now consider the motion for non-suit, but consider it and deem it a motion for judgment notwithstanding the verdict. And the trial court granted that motion. Okay. Uh, that is, I think that is very significant because that plays into how both the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court how they, end, how they end up ruling. I think that it's possible that had there been a jury verdict in special electric's favor on these facts, that the court would have affirmed that. I see. Um, and we should probably expressly say, in not sure we mentioned it, uh, Mr. Webb was diagnosed with mesothelioma in 2011, and that's why he brought the suit in the first place. So now tell me what happened on appeal. Well, the Court of Appeal reversed uh, the, the JNOV, 
the standard on, on on JNOV is that there can be no substantial evidence supporting the uh, the verdict. Uh, that it must be wrong as a matter of law, and both the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court looked at this and decided, well, no, actually, the jury's verdict uh, finding that, that there was liability here it, it is supportable by law, and uh, the elements of the defense weren't adequately established in the evidence by uh, by Special Electric. Okay. So that leads us to the the issue before the California Supreme Court is specifically that defense, the sophisticated intermediary defense, which I think helps determine whether or not a supplier's liability is cut off at a certain point before it reaches an end user who might be harmed by raw materials passed uh, along a chain of intermediaries. So could you lay out exactly what the sophisticated intermediary defense is? Sure. Well, the the... the court described the defense in the same way that the restatement does. And it says that a product supplier can discharge its duty to warn end users if it, one, provides adequate warnings to the product's immediate purchaser or sells to a sophisticated purchaser that it knows is aware or should be aware of the specific danger, and two, reasonably relies on the purchaser to convey appropriate warnings to the downstream users. Uh, I'll, I'll add that although that the court also said it's not just reasonably relies on the purchaser in that second uh, prong of the test, it's actually and reasonably relies. Um, now setting up that issue, go ahead and tell me where the court came down on this one. Well, the court adopted this defense. Uh, but found that it would not apply uh, in this case, on this evidence, and again, in this procedural posture. And perhaps the, the prime reason is one that we uh, adverted to before, and that is that although the record showed that Johns Manville was aware of the risks of asbestos in general, no evidence established that it knew about the particularly acute risks posed by chrysidolite. So that's that's that that's the that is the main reason why uh, it, it seems, or a a main reason why uh, the sophisticated intermediary defense didn't apply here. Okay, yeah, because like you say, Johns Manville sounds uh, you describe them as the poster boy for asbestos production or supply at the time. If there's a sophisticated user of asbestos, it sounds like it would be it would be them. But you say particularly because maybe they weren't aware of this particular kind of asbestos. Were there any other reasons why this sophisticated intermediary defense didn't hold water here? Well, right. There were, there were really uh, four other reasons that the court identified. One was that the evidence was disputed about whether Special Electric provided warnings to Johns Manville. Um, a response to that is, what warning could Special Electric ever have given to Johns Manville that Johns Manville didn't know? Uh, they knew as much or more about asbestos risks than just about anyone, uh, but it is, I guess we can go back to, again, there wasn't evidence about the specific uh, knowledge about chrysidolite. Uh, se a second reason was that uh, plaintiffs presented evidence that at least one Special Electric salesperson told customers that chrysidolite was actually safer than other asbestos. Um, and the court said that if the jury credited that evidence, it may have found it unreasonable for Special Electric to believe that Johns Manville was so sophisticated that they didn't need a warning about chrysidolite. Um, a third reason I think is really that will uh, come up again in other cases, and that is difficult, is saying that the record did not establish that Special Electric actually and reasonably relied on Johns Manville to warn end users. And the court recognizes that proof of actual reliance will be difficult to obtain, particularly in cases like this where we're talking about a latent disease and the material was supplied decades ago. Uh, the court says, however, actual reliance is an inference the fact finder should be able to draw from circumstantial evidence about the party's dealings. Um, which I guess I might think <laughs> maybe. <laughs> uh, uh, some of the circumstantial evidence that 
was present in this case might make you think there was actual reliance too. Let me see. I have a two-person shop in Wisconsin selling a product that they uh, import from South Africa to Johns Manville. Um, and, and Special Electric, by the way, never never has possession of the, of the stuff either. Never touches it. It all goes from, from a mine to the uh, most sophisticated user of the mineral on the planet. I wanted to elaborate a bit more on that second prong or second step of the court's analysis of this defense. So first, either the defendant has to warn an intermediary or know that that intermediary already knows of the dangers it's going to warn it about. And then it must reasonably rely on the intermediary to subsequently warn um, further users down the chain. But it seems to me that doctrinally, these steps cover some parts of the same ground. If a supplier knows that it's providing these products to a sufficiently sophisticated intermediary, it seems like they would necessarily be able to depend on that intermediary to warn downstream users, because otherwise, wouldn't they be exposed to very serious tort liability themselves, the intermediary? I think you're, you're absolutely right that there is some overlap here. Um, but there's, I guess I can think of two things to that. One is uh, whether or not you reasonably rely on it, there's also a requirement under this decision that you actually rely and that you, that you show some evidence that you actually relied on them to convey the warnings. And it is certainly uh, conceivable that there could be knowledgeable people who you shouldn't trust to give the warnings because you don't know whether they're going to give the warnings because uh, maybe they don't. In this, in this case, there was evidence uh, that Johns Manville did not warn its own employees about the hazards of asbestos. And as the Webb decision uh, noted, well, you could... You, you could extrapolate from that to think, well, if they don't warn their own employees, then why should I know that, that they're going to warn third-party uh, customers or the customers of customers, the employees, the end users of customers? Um, they're, even though you have the knowledge, maybe it is that you, that you aren't actually uh, giving it to someone else. I guess I could think of another example uh, totally outside this frame, but uh, tobacco companies. Sure. Um, you may have been selling tobacco to a tobacco company that knew everything there was to know about health risks, but gosh, the tobacco companies were all doing their level best to hide those risks or obfuscate those risks. In a situation like that, you could hardly rely on the tobacco company to be the one extending, uh, extending the warning. Sure. Okay, now we touched on this a bit, the fact-intensive nature of the jury's findings here, the the reasonableness of special electrics reliance and reason reasonableness tests are obviously always pretty fact intensive. And it seems like that was a decent part of the Cal Supreme court's ruling that the jury did its job. It determined the issues of fact made its decision. And, and that was a big reason why the court didn't want to overturn it and go the other way. So as you sort of hint, do you think if this had come down differently in the favor of special electric, it would have stayed that way. Well, I definitely think that had the jury looked at all the evidence and been presented with the sophisticated intermediary question on the verdict form and answered it in favor of special electric, I think that this case would not even have gotten to the, to the California Supreme Court. Um, I really think that it, you know, um, you asked earlier, well, is the court want to want to leave this question to the jury and, and shouldn't they just let the jury's verdict stand? Well, recall again, the jury never got to look at this, que this question. The jury never, never had this issue. The jury uh, was presented with a verdict form that gave it questions on uh, the standard causes of action, including for, for, for I guess, when it goes in for a product liability. But, uh, but the question of did the sophisticated intermediary defense apply was only directed to the trial court. I think that that was a factor in the, the Supreme Court coming down the way it did. I absolutely do. Staying on fact-intensive inquiries, you hinted at this as well. If a defendant is required to show actual and reasonable reliance for something that happened 30 or 40 years in the past, that seems like it's going to present some potential logistic difficulties for defendants in the future. Uh, is that fair to say? Well, that's a... Yeah, that's 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 absolutely right. Um, but that's you know, that is that's a problem 
with latent disease cases for any number of issues. I think it's, it's particularly uh, difficult, difficult on this, but, um, you know, frankly, both, both plaintiffs and defendants have, have hurdles in trying to reconstruct what happened 40 or 50 years ago. Sure. And touching on the, the concurrence, the partial concurrence and the partial dissent of the Chief Justice and Justice Chin, they suggest a bit of a different approach, and that which seems to demand even more of companies like Special Electric, to wit, a bright line rule of requiring, in situations like this, an express warning from the supplier to the intermediary, no matter whether that intermediary is arguably sophisticated. Uh, what do you make of that approach? It does seem like it would be easier to apply, or at least easier for courts to analyze. Well, that's true, but as I think the majority opinion recognized, that's inconsistent with it with other uh, prior president of the court and some other sound principles. One is, if I sell something to, it's the obvious danger rule. I don't have a duty to warn you if I sell you a knife that knives are sharp. Everybody knows knives are sharp. Um, why? how and why should that change because now you're going to sell the knife to somebody else. Now I have to figure out a way to warn that other person. That doesn't seem right. Um, and it's also inconsistent with the sophisticated user uh, doctrine that the court uh, adopted just a few years ago in Johnson versus American standard, which also has a new or should have known test so that you don't have to, prove that the purchaser actually knew or that the ultimate user actually knew if they're in a class of people who should be expected to know. Um, and that would seem to me to apply equally well in a case where you're talking about something that's going to end up going down to an end user as when you're selling it directly to the end user. Now, the dissenting justices said something else I thought was interesting, and that was that the court should not have decided uh, a different question, which it, it decided, and that was that related to the possibility of raw suppliers, co companies very early on in the, uh, the chain, being able to warn the end users of products. I think the Chief Justice of Justice Chin mentioned that technological advances could potentially make it possible so that a company like Special Electric could keep track of all the places where its products were disseminated and be able to warn end users like William Webb. Do you think they overstate the capacity of modern technology with that point? Well, I think worse, they're applying a, an internet lens to a princess phone era. <laughs> um, you know, whatever you may be able to do with the internet and big data now, Special Electric couldn't do it in the 1970s. Um, and I don't know how, mu how much could be done. It's interesting, the, uh, the concurring opinion said, took, took, uh, took issue with the majority opinion, which had said, well, you know, it's, you, it, people like uh, special electric position are not going to be in a position to know end users. How are they going to ever find that out? And the concurring opinion said, well, where's the evidence of that in this record? We then, then moves on to this, uh, th this notion that I guess you can get on the Internet and find out uh, – who the customers of your customers are and, and look them up and send them warnings. Um, I think that w would that be a, something that I might recommend to a client who is a supplier of dangerous materials? Yes, investigating who the end users are and trying to get a warning to them, it would be something that would help reduce your liability. But remember, the sophisticated intermediary doctrine is there to bar the need to get all the way to the end users. Right. Um, you aren't supposed to, to, to need to do that. That's sort of the point of the defense. <clears throat> on the other hand, if you can't rely on that aspect of the defense, then, uh, then actual warning it certainly puts you in a better position than no warning. Sure. So th this was an affirmance of the, the Court of Appeal opinion, and that Court of Appeal opinion was divided. There was one justice that sided on the other side of this question. Were you surprised that not one of the justices cited on the other side of this question in the California Supreme Court? I, I guess not entirely uh, for two reasons. One, because uh, the Supreme Court does try to get to unanimous decisions more often. Um, and the other reason 
is I, I, I go back to the procedural posture of this case, um, that it came on a motion for JNOV, that the issues were not uh, presented to the jury. Um, I think that, that if those things were different in a different case, I'm not sure that we'd have the, uh, the, the exact same result as we had here. Okay. Tell me, if you would, about the practical effect this ruling will have on large companies or companies such as Special Electric and attorneys that will be in the position to defend them. <laughs> uh, I was laughing because you went from large companies to companies <laughs> like Special Electric, which, right, is, which, is, entirely, which, is, which is entirely right, you know, which, is, which is entirely right. Um, I, I, I was at the oral argument on this case, and, and I heard a question from a justice saying, well, what do you mean you can't just ask your purchaser what what kind of warnings are giving? Can't your legal department just call up their legal department? And I'm thinking about these this, these two people somewhere in Wisconsin. I know they don't have a legal department. That's not what that's not what they do. Um, but what what are some things that you could advise a supplier of material that might be hazardous? One, provide warnings to the purchaser every time. Two. You could include in the sale documents that the seller is relying on the purchaser to provide warnings. Okay, so it's actually out there and it's expressed, and you're going to have a document that presumably you'll have 40 years from now when 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 you get sued again. Sure. Uh, three, you could periodically ask the purchaser whether they've been issuing warnings. Ask for proof. Four, you could make particular in, particularized inquiries about the purchaser's knowledge of the risks. You could ask the purchaser. You could ask somebody else. Go look, investigate through some third source. Um, and the fifth thing you could do, which we touched on, is you could uh, also try to look for information about who the end users are and try to get uh, appropriate warnings out to them. Again, that doesn't really uh, a lot, it's not so much the sophisticated intermediary defense because that's there to try to excuse your duty to warn end users, but it's a recognition of the limitations of the sophisticated intermediary defense, particularly after this decision. Uh, what do you see as the future for this type of tort liability and for the doctrine of the sophisticated intermedi intermediary defense? Well, I think that there will likely be more cases uh, exploring the limits, uh, sort of pushing the bounds of, 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 this, of this defense. Just as there were uh, after the sophisticated user decision, Johnson versus American Standard came down, a number of cases uh, that sort of plumbed how, how far that went. Uh, one difference here is that the sophisticated user decision actually uh, found in favor of the defense, thereby applying, uh, applying uh, it in that case. And here, I adopted a defense but didn't apply it, so there's a, 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 a perhaps a little less room to move, but uh, there will definitely be more cases uh, addressing this. Okay, then we'll leave it there and look forward to those developments. Mr. Don Willenberg from Gordon & Reese, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. more time, that was Don Willenberg, partner at Gordon & Reese. We'll now get to my conversation with Rex Heinke. I'm happy to have with us now Rex Heinke. Mr. Heinke is a partner with Aiken Gump and the co-head of the firm's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. Mr. Heinke, thanks for joining the program. Well, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So the case we're talking about now is City of Montebello versus Vasquez et al., which is being argued this week before the state Supreme Court, and which involves some claims of public corruption. Now, the defendants here are seeking to employ the anti-slap statute to dispose of this litigation at its outset. And so it sounds like the state high court is taking up the matter to further refine the contours of the anti-slap statute. Fair to say? Yep, I think that's a good description of the case. Okay, then maybe just backing up quickly, could you give me a bit of a brief background on the history and the purpose of the anti-slap statute? I know most of our listeners are probably familiar with it, but uh, just to help set a context here. 
Sure. Um, SLAP stands for Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation. So somebody first came up with SLAP and then came up with what would work with the acronym. <laughs> Um, it grew out of a law review article written by a couple of professors at the University of Denver Law School. And their theory was that there were a lot of citizen kind of gadfly types who would oppose uh, usually some local development, a zoning change, uh, whether or not a shopping center could go in, uh, whether or not you could put in landfill with garbage in it or something like that. And they would protest. They would speak out at city council meetings or zoning board meetings. They might write letters to the editor, go on radio, and so on. Uh, and the professor's theory was, based on some research they'd done, that often the people who were the proponents of these things, who were usually big companies, uh, would file defamation suits against their citizen critics. And that the point, according to the professors of these lawsuits, was to stop these people from talking. So they never really were pursued to a final judgment. They were just filed to stop the critics. So the professors proposed that there needed to be an expeditious way to quickly resolve such cases. And it's out of that that the anti-SLAP statute grew. Now, I believe the statute, and I think this is a relatively significant portion of a court's analysis when they look to whether an anti-SLAP motion can succeed, uh, is whether or not activity that's being challenged by a plaintiff is within the aegis of the statute's protection. Uh, could you tell me exactly what sort of is protected by the anti-slap statute? Well, of course, that's what's being disputed here sure. and it's been a, a disputed in a number of other cases. Uh, the statute basically has what everybody refers to as two prongs. Prong one is the question you ask, which is, does the statute apply to uh, particular speech or conduct? And prong two is, if it does, then the plaintiff has to show a probability of success on the merits to be able to go forward with the case. And this, the case, City of Montebello, is essentially a prong one case, although the parties do discuss prong two in their briefs. Right. So what does it apply to? Well, this may be a little cumbersome, but I can't think of anything better than to read the statutory definition. Uh, statute applies to an act in furtherance of a person's right of petition or free speech under the United States or California constitutions in connection with a public issue. Statute goes on to say this includes any written or oral statement or writing before a legislative executive or judicial proceeding or any other official proceeding authorized by law or any written or oral statement or writing in connection with an issue under consideration by such a body or any written or oral statement or writing in a place open to the public or a public forum in connection with an issue of public interest or any other conduct in the furtherance of the exercise of the constitutional right of petition and free speech in connection with a public issue or an issue of public interest. So the um, statute is certainly broader than simply the scope of the First Amendment in the federal constitution or the equivalent in the state constitution. Um, then jumping into this case specifically, what what are the actions that were challenged in this case? What actions are is the court trying to determine whether or not uh, those actions fit under the anti-slap statute or not? Well, essentially, the city of Montebello contends that three of its former city council members and its former administrator had a conflict of interest when they approved a trash hauling contract that this violated government code section 1090, which prohibits um, government officials from voting on things that they have a financial interest in. The city contends that the three city council members uh, were taking political contributions from the waste hauler uh, with the expectation that they would vote in favor of the waste hauler. 
the defendants filed an anti-slap motion to dismiss the case. And that's uh, what now is in front of the California Supreme Court. Uh, to be precise, the issue that the Supreme Court granted review on is did votes by city officials to approve a contract constitute conduct protected under Code of Civil Procedure Section 425.16, which is the anti-slap statute, despite the allegation that they had a financial interest in the contract. Taking just a bit of a step backwards on the procedural posture at trial, the anti-slap motion was denied by the, the court. And then on appeal, I think the second district affirmed that decision. But I think there's somewhat of an important difference between the way those two courts ruled as to the conduct. Is that, do I have that right? right? You do. Um, one issue, which is not really an issue on appeal, is there is an exception in the anti-slap statute to actions brought to by the government to enforce the law. So the slap statute does not apply to the government. Uh, the trial court held that that exception was not applicable here. The court of appeal agreed. The Supreme Court did not grant review. So while the briefs discuss that and so on, I don't believe the court's going to reach that issue. It right. also held that the conduct here, the voting, was protected by the slap statute, but then went on to say that the city had met its burden of proving a probability of success, so the case could go forward. Um, it's also important to understand what a probability of success means. It essentially means that the plaintiff could defeat a summary judgment motion, that they have law and facts that indicate that they would be able to prevail on a summary judgment motion. Okay. Then the Court of Appeal held that the conduct was not protected, so it did not reach prong two about probability of success. It just said the statute doesn't apply, so we don't have to reach anything else. So then boiling it down, the question is whether voting in these city council meetings, if that behavior specifically is under the protection of the anti-slap statute? Right. Maybe it's slightly broader than that, which is does when a le somebody in the legislature is voting, is that voting protected by the anti-slap statute? Okay. Now, one of the little twists in this case is it's not at all clear how um, the anti-slap statute could apply to the former administrator since he wasn't on the city council. Uh, didn't engage in any voting, and only was alleged to have negotiated the contract. And that seems to be pretty clearly outside the scope of the statute. But as to the other three defendants, the issue that's really teed up is whether or not voting by somebody in a, uh, in a legislative body, and I assume this would apply to administrative bodies and so on, is protected under the SLAP statute. Now, that sort of leads me to ask about the statutory language that you laid out earlier, specifically a portion that said um, a certain type of behavior that was protected, and that is um, statements made in connection with an issue under consideration or review by legislative, executive, or judicial body. So obviously this, this contract with the, the waste management company tied to which may have been some potential corruption, but that issue was under consideration at this meeting of a legislative body. So why doesn't that statutory language itself determine that, yes, this behavior was protected by or is protected by the anti-slap statute? Well, I think the difficulty is if you read the statute carefully, it says any written or oral statement or writing made before such a body. And it's pretty hard to characterize a vote as a written statement. So I don't think that that provision really is going to be found applicable here. Okay. Now, there's some U.S. Supreme Court precedent, I believe, that both sides cited in their briefs. This is the case of Nevada Commission on ethics versus Kerrigan, and it seems like both parties kind of differ about what exactly that case stands for and the importance that it has here. Uh, in your opinion, what, how does that case have bearing on this, uh, the case at issue here? Well, it's a 2001 U.S. Supreme Court uh, case, and it held that legislators voting is not protected by the First Amendment. Now, the defendants... Uh, who say, say, well, wait a second, that, that may be true, 
but covery, the coverage of the anti-slap statute is not identical to the federal First Amendment, nor is it identical to the California state constitution, constitutional provision of free speech. And in fact, the statute is broader than either of those. Um, that is all true, but it really doesn't answer the question of, okay, it's broader, but what does it cover? Tell me what exactly is at stake here. I know the Court of Appeals said that this behavior was not under the aegis of the anti-slap statute, and to hold otherwise would cause the statute to swallow all city council actions and require anyone seeking to challenge a legislative decision on any issue to first make a prima facie case showing the merits of their claim. Is that an exaggeration at all? How would you describe what's at stake here? Well, I might say it slightly differently, but I'm not sure that in essence it would be that different, which is the question presented is whether votes by legislatures, legislators are protected by the SLAP statute, uh, setting aside this question of the former administrator. So that's the issue um, that's really teed up here and obviously is going to be important for either anybody who is a legislator or anybody who wants to challenge the acts of a legislature. And I think the Court of Appeal rightly pointed to a concern. Did the legislature, the state legislature, when it passed the SLAP statute, which it's repeatedly amended, did it really believe that what it was doing was making the statute applicable to any action taken by a legislator? Right. Yeah, as you outlined the the purpose at the top of our conversation, it sounds like votes by legislators might not have been what that professor had in mind when he was first penning that law review article about the potential statute. Well, certainly the professors didn't think um, this is what uh, they had in mind. It's not even close to what they were thinking about. Uh, Obviously, the California state legislature could have thought something else. California statute is far and away the most rigorous, that is, pro-defendant of all the 26 states that have adopted a anti-slap statute. Um, so you could, of course, say, well, California is very protective in this instance, so this should be broadly interpreted. But I think in the end, the California Supreme Court is going to hold that voting by itself is not protected by the anti-slap statute. We raised a concern mentioned by the Court of Appeal. Now, if the the California Supreme Court does rule the way that you forecast, that would, in the original defendants and appellants in this case view, uh, that would bring up some other potential problems. To wit, one potential circumstance that the appellants point out is that if this particular activity, voting by legislators, is deemed to not be under the protection of the statute, then it would encourage many more uh, frivolous lawsuits. They say that 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 would put legislators and board members directly in the bullseye for every type of frivolous lawsuit imaginable. What do you make of that? Do you think that is a bit of an exaggerated claim? Well, look, they can be sued, uh, but don't forget that uh, legislators have uh, various immunities against suit. Um, they're probably going to be defended by the government for their past actions. Um, and, you know, they, they really aren't any more subject than anyone else is to frivolous litigation. So I think that's an exaggeration of the problem. Touching on a point made by the respondents here about the original purpose of the anti-slap statute and as you point to, it sounds like it seemed to be purpose to protect activity that could be chilled, whereas this activity here, acts of the city council, votes taken by government officials, that seems less likely to be activity that could be chilled. I mean, legislative bodies have to do their work. They have to take votes. Is that a fair surmise? Right, right. I mean, the job of a legislator is ultimately to vote on legislation. So it's a little hard to believe that potential liability is going to stop them from voting. The respondents also mentioned that were this activity deemed protected under the statute, that it could take a pretty valuable weapon out of the hands of potential plaintiffs, namely this uh, government code 10, 
90 to fight public corruption. Do you think that is a potential circumstance that could arise if um, the court rules that this activity is protected? Well, I don't think that's a huge problem because don't forget that even if the statute applies, if you can show a probability of success, that you're still going to be able to go forward. Okay, then why is it such a big issue then if that's the case, if the ballgame isn't over once the activity is deemed protected, if the, the plaintiffs can still show, hey, we might win on the merits of the case, which here it seems like that might be an easy showing to make a vote in the favor of this company and then large donations made by them to these voters. Um, so what's the problem with just saying, right. okay, we'll say this is protected and then you well, make your case? Well, I'll, before we get to that, let me mention that um, the defendants, of course, say there's nothing wrong with taking political contributions. Sure. That that's the way the American political system works. Uh, people have to raise money to be able to have campaigns. And the defendants say there's nothing wrong with that as long as there's no quid pro quo. Right. That is, as long as someone doesn't say, well, I will vote for you or, or against something you're opposing if you give me money. And they contend that there's no evidence of that. And, of course, the trial, the, the trial court agreed with the, the city that it had enough evidence to go forward. If the Supreme Court here says that the statute applies, then I think the case will go back to the Court of Appeal to decide whether prong two has been met. That is, to review the trial court's decision that said, yes, the city had enough evidence to go forward. Okay. And now you finished on this earlier. How do you see this case coming down and why do you see it that way? Well, I think the the court is going to say that the statute does not apply to this kind of conduct. I think looking at the language of the statute, it doesn't seem to support this. And the whole idea behind the statute was to protect speech. And this really... Uh, you know, voting really is not speech. If the city council members were being sued because they had argued in favor of the contract and urged other people on the city council to vote for it and so on, then I think they would have the protection of the statute. But when it's simply based on you voted for or against... I don't think the statute covers that. Okay. Well, we'll find out in the next couple of months if the court agrees with you. Mr. Rex Heinke, right. thanks very much for, for joining me. I appreciate you being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. For our last segment, we're going to deviate slightly from the show's usual routine. Typically, each of our segments considers one appellate case or issue – But sometimes, as is the circumstance this week, there are a few cases that might not necessitate the focus of a full segment, but are worth touching on briefly. I'll do that now in our first Appellate Roundup segment. First in the Roundup, plaintiffs in the case of Vergara v. California who lost an appellate court, petitioned the California Supreme Court Tuesday to grant review of the matter. In the case, plaintiffs challenged certain state statutes that grant public school teachers tenure after two years, too quickly in the plaintiff's view, and that make dismissing underperforming teachers arguably too challenging. In its decision, the appellate court noted, among other things, the challenges at issue were probably best left to the state legislature. When that ruling came down, Professor Catherine Fisk of UC Irvine School of Law and Jeremy Rosen, a partner with Horvitz and Levy, joined the podcast to share their thoughts. Both had opinions as to the result, should the plaintiffs appeal that adverse ruling. Let's hear what Professor Fisk had to say. I, it's hard to know, but I think that the Court of Appeal decision in Vergara is very thorough and very uh, careful to point out that the problem in the Vergara case is that the theory that job protections for teachers cause poor quality education can't be sustained given the fact that the administration of those statutes happens at the local level. Individual school districts, individual principals, and the evidence in the case showed after an eight-week trial that some school districts 
do both well-funded and school districts like Irvine or Palo Alto, for example, although those sure. ca- neither of those school districts was a focus of this litigation. But, for example, the Oakland Unified School District, which has a very high concentration of poor and minority students, or the Riverside School District, that certain principals have experimented with different ways to recruit and retain high-quality teachers even in schools that you would expect to have serious trouble keeping a high-quality teaching force because the school dis- the school has such a high concentration of kids who really struggle to learn for reasons having nothing to do with the schools. And so I would think given the factual nature of the question of which kinds of personnel policies cause good teachers to be in some schools rather than others, I would think that is not a case that the California Supreme Court should take, but rather the court might say a better crafted lawsuit that is more focused on the question of what policies cause bad teachers to keep teaching is could be brought in the trial court, and then they might be willing to take that case. So sure. I think the California Supreme Court probably will not, and I think certainly it should not take the Vergara case. And now we'll hear from Mr. Rosen. Well, you know, it's difficult to to predict how sure. you know any court is going to rule, and you know, and petitions for review are statistically very difficult. You know, the Supreme Court is you know, quite correctly, very selective. Uh, in the cases it takes, it takes about 2 to 5% of the cases brought before it. Uh, but generally, uh, you know, the Supreme Court wants to take cases of, of extreme statewide importance. And, you know, I can't think of anything of greater uh, importance to the state than the, than the education of, of our children. And so, uh, you know, I, I guess I would be cautiously optimistic that uh, the Supreme Court would want to uh, uh, take this case, and, and I'd be cautiously optimistic that the, the Supreme Court would uh, come to a different conclusion uh, than the Court of Appeal. You know, but obviously, you know, reasonable. You know, I obviously have very strong views on this. I, I'm not blind to the fact that people have strong views on the other side, and sure. you know, that's also what, what makes our country great, and our, uh, is that we we can have this vigorous debate. But um, you know, I think for you know, you know, for the sake of the children, I hope uh, that the court uh, does take this case and, and look at it. Very seriously, and, and more fundamentally, you know, I hope that regardless of what happens in this court case, that uh, that at least this opinion sort of highlights the urgent problems. Because as you point out, you know, even the Court of Appeal, who reversed the trial court, uh, acknowledges that the current statutes are suboptimal for you know millions of, of children. And you know, I would encourage you know our legislative leaders to to try to uh, come to a, a solution because. Uh, you know, no one benefits uh, if we have a generation who's not well-educated. Next in the roundup, the case of People v. Franklin, which saw its opinion filed yesterday. In this case, the California Supreme Court wrestled with whether a state statute requiring parole opportunities for juvenile defendants within 25 years of incarceration rendered moot any Eighth Amendment claims based on the recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Miller v. Alabama that could have been brought by the defendant here, Tyrus Franklin, who was given a 50-year-to-life sentence after being convicted of a murder committed when he was 16. Professor Heidi Rummel of USC Gould School of Law, who, along with a team of law students in the school's post-conviction justice project, wrote an amicus brief on behalf of Mr. Franklin, joined the podcast a few weeks back to discuss why the parole process, even where a hearing is guaranteed after 25 years, isn't sufficient to provide juvenile offenders the meaningful opportunity for release Miller demands. Let's listen. The standard for release on parole in California is whether an inmate poses a current danger to the community. Um, But the judicial review is extremely deferential to the determination made by the parole board, which is composed of commissioners appointed by the governor. Um, So the smallest reason or what seems like it might be the most insignificant reason can be sufficient to deny parole. You know, recent a recent rule violation for sort of a nonviolent, non-drug related offense can be sufficient. Um, a lack of insight into why you um, committed the offense, um, or a description of insight that 
doesn't comport with what the parole board believes your insight should look like or should be um, is sufficient to deny parole in California. And um, although those decisions are can be challenged in the courts, um, inmates are not entitled to counsel to challenge those decisions. And like I said, it's a very deferential standard of review, the sum evidence standard. So if there is any modicum of evidence that you pose a current danger, the parole denial will stand in the courts. The, the process is well defined in Miller and in Gutierrez, but you know there should be a sentencing hearing where the court gives careful consideration and develops a record of the mitigating factors of youth so that a constitutional sentence can be imposed and also so that when a parole board um, reviews a youth offender's eligibility for parole 20, 25 or more years into the future, we have a better understanding of who that person was at the time they committed their crime, what was going on in their life, and why they might be less culpable. And, and the parole board can then evaluate their growth and maturity as it's required to do under SB 260. The Supreme Court came down against Franklin and against the position espoused by Professor Rummel. However, the court did remand the matter to the trial court and directed that court to determine whether Franklin had ample opportunity at the time of his sentencing to create a record of mitigating evidence to provide for a more robust, particularized, and solicitous parole hearing that Mr. Franklin will now await. Finally, concluding the roundup is a ruling from the country's high court, Foster v. Chapman, which was released Monday and which dealt with racial bias during criminal jury selection. Here, Georgia prosecutors in 1987 made special and particular notes about the racial identities of black prospective jurors, seeking successfully to exclude African Americans from the jury panel that would pass judgment on a black defendant, something made unconstitutional by, most recently, the High Court's ruling in Batson v. Kentucky, which held the jurors could not be excluded because of their race. In his opinion here, Chief Justice Roberts rebuked across the intervening three decades those prosecutors and remanded the case back to Georgia for further action. Though the ruling might give hope to other African-American inmates convicted by all-white juries, early commentary seems to suggest that the opinion's reach may not be terribly broad since the prosecutor's exhaustive and damning notes uncovered in this case may be difficult to find in other actions. And that's the end of our program for May 27th, 2016. One more thanks goes out to Don Willenberg of Gordon and Reese and also Rex Heinke of Aiken Gump. And thank you, fair listener, for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Don't forget that CLE credit is available for your having listened. There should be a link on the page where this podcast appears at dailyjournal.com. Once again, I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.